This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Tonight on Battleground, koalas versus wind turbines. How the headlong rush for renewable energy is destroying the habitats of our most precious endangered species. I'll be talking to the renowned wildlife photographer, Stephen Nowakowski, about the unequal battle between turbines, solar panels on the one hand and nature on the other. I'll also be joined by Senator Matt Canavan to talk about the rapid rollout of renewable energy in central Queensland and the harm to the local communities. Also tonight, as New Zealand's Labor government prepares for an election it will almost certainly lose, I'll be joined by Oliver Hartwich from Auckland for a verdict on Jacinda Ardern and the mess she leaves behind. That's all coming up on Battleground, which streams every Thursday at 8pm Eastern Standard Time on ADH-TV. You can watch it online anytime or via the ADH-TV app, which you can download from your smart TV or smartphone. It's going to take more than soaring rhetoric to reverse the slide in the polling. With eight days to go until the referendum, the Prime Minister has left it far too late to explain what the voice will actually do, apart from making us feel warm and fuzzy inside, of course. There's been ample time in the 14 months since he announced the referendum for Anthony Albanese to make a pub-ready argument for the voice. And this is probably the best he can do. And this is an opportunity to advance our nation and to give respect to Indigenous Australians, but also for non-Indigenous Australians. It won't have any impact in a direct way on their lives, but it will make us feel better about who we are as a nation. It will send a signal to ourselves and to the world that we're a mature nation that is coming to terms with the fullness of our history and that we're proud of sharing this great continent of ours with the oldest continuous culture on earth. Convinced? Neither am I. It's all about the sentiment, voting for the voice on the vibe, because we care about the plight of the less fortunate and because, to quote the Prime Minister, it'll make us feel better about who we are as a nation. Well, I'm sorry, Prime Minister, most Australians feel pretty good about the place already. What worries them is what the voice will make. The voice will make a great country worse. It will re-racialise our nation and our constitution. It'll end any pretense that our constitution is racially neutral. 
unlike the United States, where the Supreme Court is bound to uphold the principle of racial neutrality under the 14th Amendment. Justice John Marshall Harlan, in a lone dissent to the Supreme Court's 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson decision, described it this way. Our constitution is colourblind and knows neither and neither knows nor tolerates classes amongst citizens. Australia's 14th Amendment moment, as far as we've had one, was to, in two decisions taken in 1967 under the short-lived government of Harold Holt. The first decision was to end the white Australia policy. In the spirit of Dr Martin Luther King Jr's declaration four years earlier, it allowed immigration decisions to be based on character, not race. The second turning point was the referendum in May 1967, passed by a majority of 90.4%. That referendum's intention was to remove any grounds for official discrimination against a particular race with reference to the particular reference to the census. Anthony Albanese is asking us to change that in the amendment before us at the referendum on October 14. This is not about equal rights. Equal respect and equal opportunity will grant special rights to Indigenous people, extra political authority, a louder voice and more influence than other citizens. It will institutionalise discrimination for the first time in our history, positive discrimination in favour of one group, defined by race, which inevitably means discriminating against others. The notion that it's possible to discriminate in favour of one group without prejudic prejudicing the rights of another was firmly refuted earlier this year in a US Supreme Court decision upholding the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional for universities to offer special admission deals to African-American students. To do so would discriminate against white, Asian and Latino students applying for a fixed number of college places. The most eloquent defender of the court's decision was Justice Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas is an African-American born in 1948 in Pinpoint, Georgia, in the then segregated South. After his father abandoned his family, he was raised by his grandfather in a poor Gullah community near Savannah, speaking English as his second language. Thomas is amongst a shrinking minority of African-Americans who could claim, reasonably claim to have been directly harmed by the segregationist policies in place for the first 20 years of his life. Yet he makes no such claim, warning of the hidden dangers of pursuing historical grievances. He said, quote, Today's 17-year-olds, after all, did not live through the Jim Crow era, enact or enforce segregation laws, or take any action to oppress or enslave the victims of the past. They do not shoulder the moral depths of their ancestors. Our nation should not punish today's youth for the sins of the past. The temptation to equate the history of US race relations with our own is, for the most part, best avoided. Australia did not experience slavery or Jim Crow, and to the extent that Australians have resolved their differences, they've done so without a civil war. They've not experienced the bitterness and racial violence that culminated in the 1964 Civil Rights Act or the divisiveness of the Black Lives Matter movement. Yet the spirit of the 14th Amendment and the clarity Justice Thomas brings should help us marshal our thoughts as we consider the radical change we're being asked to make to our system of government at the next referendum. As Thomas says, I quote, only that promise can allow us to look 
past our differing skin colours and identities and see each other for what we truly are, individuals with unique thoughts, perspectives and goals, but with equal dignity and equal rights under the law. What matters is not the barriers they face, but how they choose to confront them. And their race is not to blame for everything good or bad that happens in their lives. A contrary myopic worldview based on individual skin colour to the total exclusion of their personal choices is nothing short of racial determinism. Well, you won't need reminding that the referendum to enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament is just nine days away on October 14. Uh, it's a simple question to which the, I'll be voting no. The idea that some citizens are more equal than others in Australia is just something I signed up for when I became a citizen of this country more than 30 years ago. And the notion that we should be divided by race was an anathema to me. Every Australian deserves equal respect regardless of ancestry. But it's a free vote, so you can vote whichever way you like, of course. Uh, as it happens, New Zealand will also be going to the polls on that same day to elect a new government. The Kiwis appear to be tiring of Labor if the polls are anything to go by. Three years ago, in the middle of the COVID madness, Jacinta Ardern, remember her, led Labor into a second term with a commanding victory. Labor won 65 seats, giving it a clear majority in Parliament for the first time since the mixed member proportional representation system was introduced in 1986. The National Party, led by Judith Collins, won 33 seats with the ACT and the Greens both on 10, the Mary Party on two, and no Winston Peters. Uh, this time around, it's looking like a very different story. Labor has been in freefall since the start of 2021. Chris Hipkins, who took over from Ardern at the start of this year, has been unable to stem the flow of votes against Labor. Uh, the News Verian poll for New Zealand Television recently had Chris Hipkins on 26%. That's uh, almost half the vote they had three years ago, with the National Party on 36%. Oliver Hartwich of the New Zealand Initiative is a regular guest on Battleground, and he joins me now from Wellington. Oliver, good to see you again. Great to be with you, Nick. Well, as we were saying before we, before we started, the MMP system uh, the, it's complicated and unpredictable. So uh, let's put that aside for a moment and look at the betting odds. The National Party is $1.15 to win. Labour is on $5.50. Can we take it that Christopher Luxon will be the next Prime Minister of New Zealand? Yeah, I think it looks increasingly likely that Luxon will be the next Prime Minister. What we simply don't know yet is, of course, what kind of coalition he will lead. So for a while, it looked as if it would just be a coalition with the National Party and ACT. So that's our small libertarian party. But actually, in the last couple of opinion polls, it was a hung parliament. And just having these two parties together would not be enough because they had precisely 60 seats out of 120 in our parliament. So it would actually need an extra seat or two to really help them across the line. And that could be Winston Peters. Winston Peters yet again. Um, but let's look briefly at Jacinda Ardern's legacy. Uh, here she is giving her farewell speech to the Parliament. Now, I cannot determine what will define my time in this place, but I do hope I've demonstrated something else entirely, that you can be anxious, sensitive, kind, and wear your heart on your sleeve. You can be a mother or not. You can be an ex-Mormon or not. You can be a nerd, a crier, a hugger, 
You can be all of these things. And not only can you be here, you can lead just like me. Noreda, Tina Koto, Tina Koto, Tina Koto. Well, there we go. A crier, a hugger, compassionate, whatever else she said. After five years in office, Oliver, you'd, you'd think a Prime Minister would have something more to boast about than just being compassionate. Was she simply being modest? Oh, well, I think she didn't have much of a legacy to celebrate. And then, of course, after that, she almost immediately left New Zealand and made her way to Harvard, where she has now three fellowships and enjoys being part of the Harvard set. The latest I actually read about her was just yesterday. She attended some function together with the Clooney's and enjoyed herself. And last week she was on Good Morning America celebrating herself and her great non-achievements in the same kind of way that she did in her farewell speech in the parliament. So, yeah, Jacinda has um, strangely disappeared from our lives in New Zealand and from our politics. And it is quite astonishing, actually. I mean, she was a dominant figure for a few years she's not even in the country for this election and she doesn't play any role at all in Labour's campaign. Uh, well, look, I know you're not the fashion correspondent, uh, Oliver, but if we can just call up that image of her in the Parliament again, uh, if we can get that on the screen. Can you tell me what that is wrapped around her shoulders there? Well, it's a traditional gown from what I remember, but I can't see your screen, Nick, unfortunately. It looks yeah, like a sort I mean, of Maori adornment. Would that be right? Yeah, of course it is. That would be right from what I remember, but as I say, I can't, can't see it right now. No, I mean, everything is about uh, impressions, it's about symbolism, it's about show, and basically that sums her up. Well, look, you had, um, if not the worst lockdown in the world, certainly the, probably the most closed country for much of that COVID period. Uh, Ardern's boast was she could keep she would keep NZ COVID free. Well, she failed in that task. The latest data I have is that there were 4,869 New Zealanders who sadly lost their lives to COVID. That, Oliver, is higher per capita than Australia, if we exclude Victoria. Now, that's not good, is it? Uh, do people mark her down for that? And are people marking the Labor Party down for that? Or have they just put it to the back of their minds and moved on? I think it's a letter. I think COVID simply isn't a non-issue in this election campaign. And actually, I think they're marking her down for all her other failings, and there are plenty of them. We have a school system where about half of our students leave school functionally illiterate and enumerate. We have um, crime out of control in our cities with um, a REM rate now committed more than once a day. We have problems in infrastructure where actually all the great infrastructure projects that Jacinda Ardern promised Light rail from Auckland Airport to the city hasn't even started. There was the other idea of another crossing across Auckland Harbour that hasn't started. Then, of course, um, there are potholes everywhere on our roads. Uh, the state of our roading system in New Zealand is a disgrace. And on top of that, our hospital system is also falling apart. So if you are unlucky enough to need A&E treatment, there are cases where patients are waiting eight to ten hours until they're seen by a doctor. So, yeah, COVID, um, probably not um, a spectacular achievement of the current government, but actually there are so many other areas in which they've also failed. And I think that's what's really agitating New Zealanders. And we haven't even talked about the cost of living crisis. Now, let's talk about the law and order issue, because I've been reading about this, and it seems to be, um, I mean, this is what what's happening in a lot of cities in the States, right? Uh, it, as soon as you, you ask the police to go soft on crime, 
and presumably the courts take their cue from that as well, this is what you get, right? I mean, that's just... It is just what happens when you stop coming down hard on people who break the law. And that is exactly right. So this government started off by saying that they would like to reduce the prison population. And guess what? That is the only thing in which Labour has succeeded. The prison population is a lot lower these days. Unfortunately, they haven't solved the crime issue. So we have now cases where people accused of murder, convicted murderers, are home on home detention with an ankle bracelet. But they're not in prison. So in a way, Labour's ticking that box. So the prison population is down, but New Zealand hasn't become safer. New Zealand used to be the kind of country where you didn't have to lock your house when you left, where you didn't have to lock your car. And nowadays, actually, you actually wouldn't want to go out at night in downtown Auckland because of fear of being robbed or mucked or shot or stabbed. It is no longer a safe place, and New Zealanders are feeling that, and that's another reason why they're angry with this government. Should anybody be surprised by this? So you, you, you lower the prison population, i.e. you put more criminals on the streets, and you get more crime. I mean, why don't they get this, Oliver? I mean, it's kind of... You've seen it time and time again in the United States. They go through these waves, and then it comes... They bring it back, and then it goes through another wave as it is at the moment. What, 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 what is well, it about it, the empirical it evidence they can't... Yeah, no, it shouldn't be surprising at all. And actually, the ways in which they have achieved this, we have massive sentencing discounts. You basically get um, a cultural report written for you. It notes, actually, that you're coming from a really poor background, that you're coming from a disadvantaged background. And because of all of that, you deserve a much le more lenient sentence. And then you get discounts, sometimes up to you know, 80%. It is just ridiculous, actually. So the next government will actually have to turn this around, give instructions to the police, give instructions also to the courts, make it very clear in the Sentencing Act, actually, that discounts of the kinds given in the last few years are no longer acceptable. And then we have to get this country back to law and order. And we also have to do something about the gang culture because that has exploded under this current government. I mean, the current government actually gave funding, believe it or not, to the gangs for drug rehabilitation programs, millions of dollars. I mean, seriously, who, who would actually give one of the most criminal parts of society a task in dealing with crime? Uh, that must be um, an idea that only Labour could come up with. I must say, we, we, I suppose to some extent, Australians have must thank Jacinta Ardern for showing what happens when you go down this uh, indigenous rights path, in your case with, with Maoris. Uh, I think that that's been, to some extent, a bit of a lesson for us as we approach The Voice. But how do ordinary, uh, or how do the majority of New Zealanders feel about that? Are the, is, it, is it again something they're likely to mark Labour down for? Well, I think most New Zealanders would not like this approach. And by the way, I'm speaking about both Maori and non-Maori New Zealanders, because I don't think they are speaking on behalf of Maori. They're speaking on behalf of a small elite, perhaps, or some real ideologues uh, asking for these policies, but ordinary people of whatever skin color are against these policies because they would like to live in a country that's united and where everybody has the same rights. So no, um, this policy didn't work so well. And actually that would have been a preview for Australia, just in case you're going down the path of the voice. Mm. I think we're not, but we should see on the... Uh on the 14th, Oliver, um, inflation in New Zealand is down from its peak last December to about, uh, I think, 6% in June, which is uh, just a tad below Australia. 
But if, if our experience here is anything to go by, that must be hurting. Oh, it's certainly hurting and uh, it is sticky, this inflation. It's really difficult to get it under control. And now we're paying the price really for the excesses of the last few years because our Reserve Bank was perhaps even more activist um, during the COVID crisis compared to the RBA. The other thing to keep in mind is, of course, that the pain in New Zealand from monetary excesses of the past has only just begun. In Australia, of course, you have mortgage rates that really fluctuate quite directly with the um, OCR. In New Zealand, it takes a bit longer because typically our mortgages are fixed for two, three, four years. So it takes a while until the rising interest rates will actually have an effect on New Zealand households. So I think the worst is still to come for us. Well, the National Party were last in government uh, up until 2017. A lot of people here had enormous respect for what they did. In, indeed, you wrote a very a good book on this subject for the Menzies Research Centre on, on what we could learn from the governments of uh, John Key and Bill English. Well, what sort of condition are they going to inherit should Christopher Luxon become pre Prime Minister on, on the 14th? What type of New Zealand will he inherit compared to the one uh, that they gave to Labour in 2017? Well, the one word to describe New Zealand these days is polycrisis, because every single aspect of public life is in crisis at the same time. On top of that, the kitty's empty because Labour spent it all. Until 2017, 2019, really, still, we spent about 28, 29% of GDP with the government. This is now roughly 31, 32%. And the crisis, of course, the COVID crisis is over. So actually, we should also reduce the spending levels to pre-crisis levels, but we don't. And on top of that, of course, we have a lot more public debt than we used to. We started with about $60 billion of debt. We're now at about $160 billion. So that next government that comes in after October 14 will have a massive cleanup job ahead of it. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if the next government, by having a closer look at the, at the books, comes to the conclusion that we might need an emergency budget before Christmas even, because we can't go on the way we have, and we have to start the cleanup job now. Well, two questions, maybe I'll roll them into one. Is Christopher Luxon up to the task, and are New Zealanders ready for what sounds like uh, an austerity approach? Well, I guess we'll see the answer to both questions after October 14. Christopher Luxon has done a good job as leader of the opposition. He united a party that was previously um, famously disunited and actually leaking against itself. So he's actually restored discipline to the National Party and he looks like a credible prime minister. And in polls, actually, he's now the preferred prime minister ahead of Chris Hipkins. So actually, he's done a relatively good job as opposition leader. How he will be as prime minister? Well, we don't know because he's actually still a young politician. He's only been in parliament since 2020. He's never held a ministerial portfolio before. So I think, and I suspect it will still be a steep learning curve for him. Then again, he has managerial ex expertise. He was CEO of Air New Zealand. He was a CEO at, of Unilever in Canada for a while. So he certainly knows how to lead big organizations, how to do turnaround jobs. Now we'll have to see whether he can turn around the country too. And on your second question, are New Zealanders ready for it? I'm not so sure because uh, New Zealanders probably don't quite realize the full extent of the crisis. We have a pathetically weak media in New Zealand. And unfortunately, ordinary New Zealanders are probably not even aware of all the multitude of problems that we are facing in this country and which urgently need to be fixed. So 
Christopher Luxon will have his job cut out for him and the next three years will be tough. And if he doesn't? If he doesn't manage that task? If he doesn't manage that task, then New Zealand uh, will continue its path down towards decline. We will continue our way down towards becoming another Pacific island, probably not just as warm as other Pacific islands, but probably just as impoverished. Oliver, thank you very much for bringing us up to date and uh, we'll get you back after the election, if we may, just to see how things pan out and what the uh, what things are looking at at that point. Hopefully with better news. Thanks, Oliver. Well, we return to the conflict between big renewables and nature, the impact of land-hungry wind and solar generation on our natural landscapes, native bushland and wildlife. Three years ago, an application for the Lotus Creek wind turbine development in central Queensland hit the desk of the then Federal Environment Minister, Susan Lee. If the development went ahead, it would have meant bulldozing a kilometre after kilometre of old growth forest on the Clark Connors Range, west of the Bruce Highway between Rockhampton and Mackay. The environmental report into, into, the, into the site identified 341 hectares of known koala habitat that would be under threat. As you'd expect, Susan Lay rejected the application. She said it was clearly unacceptable under national environment laws, particularly so soon after the catastrophic bushfires in the previous summer, which had claimed the lives of many native species. When the coalition lost office in May last year, Tanya Plibersek became the new environment minister. Tanya Plibersek is a professed koala lover. Attached to her Facebook page is peppered with pictures of her cuddling the fairy marsupials. She lamented the black summer bushfires that killed or displaced thousands of koalas, impacting 3.7 million hectares of koala habitat on Australia's east coast. Earlier this year, she told The Age, You've got the Liberals and Nationals who've always had a kind of let it rip view on development that has led to the environmental crisis that this country is in at the moment. If you want your kids and grandkids to be able to see koalas in the wild, we're going to have to change what we're doing because in New South Wales we're on a trajectory to be no koalas by 2050. Well, yet in December last year, Plibersek reversed Susan Lee's decision on Lotus Creek. That's right, she gave approval for the development to go ahead, giving the green light to the developers to cut swathes through native forests. It begs the question, had anything happened to the 341 hectares of koala habitat in the meantime, between Susan Lee's rejection of the application in June 2020 and Plibersek's approval 30 months later? Did the koalas move out? Perhaps they'd fled to Florida, perhaps, when the Labor government got in. Well, Stephen Narakowski is a renowned natural photographer. He's a regular guest on Battleground, one of the few environmentalists who's had the courage to recognise the harmful effects of renewable energy development on the natural environment. Recently, he spent time at Lotus Creek to assess the biodiversity of the land, where, barring a last-minute reprieve, the demolition of forests will begin shortly. Stephen will be joining me in a moment, but first, here's a little of what he found. Yeah, so this is the road down to, up to the Lotus Creek wind farm. You can see it off here in the distance. Those high ranges, quite dense vegetation. Yeah, so we've just driven through a whole sea of cleared land and we're making our way up, up to these, up the top of these hills. That's where the wind farm's going. 
yeah, and this, uh, this is going to be turned into a huge, big haulage road. So it's going to be widened and the componentry for these big wind farms will come down these roads and there'll be new roads punched up through all these mountains off in the distance. Yeah, so this is what it's about. This is green energy, friends. Yep, smashing up all these little beautiful remnant pieces of forest. We're on the Lotus Creek wind farm site um, and we've just found a koala. This is just incredible. It's so amazing. So really, my selfie's just woken up actually. It's up in the tree here. Beautiful old growth remnant forest. Really healthy looking koala sitting up in the tree. We know that there's koalas here. Greater gliders. Great beautiful understory old growth remnant forest. Never been touched. I can't, there's no woody, there's no weeds on, in the understory. Beautiful, beautiful forest. And we're going to carve it up for a green renewable energy. This is just insane. This is what's happening. So all you people out there in the cities that are pushing through green energy, this is what's happening in North Queensland. We're carving up our remnant forests. What's left, the high altitude areas, the places that haven't been cleared for agriculture, urbanisation, industrialisation, and we're carving them all up now for a new industrialisation called wind. Yeah, just woken up here at the Lotus Creek wind farm site. Stunning night last night. Multiple koalas, most a lot of females with cubs on their back. Greater gliders, Rufus Bedong. You know, I've been involved with the conservation sector for so long now, all my life. And uh, I, the places like this were supposed to be protected under the Vegetation Management Act. I can't, it's just. Well, Steve, you, you, um, you, you go looking for wildlife and beautiful places for a living. That's what you do. You take some wonderful pictures, they appear in your annual calendars. What did you think? I mean, is, is that a rare experience for you to walk into somewhere that's so rich in koalas as, as Lotus Creek? <clears throat> yeah, what you saw there was um, the first koala that we saw on our first trip. I've been there twice to Lotus Creek. And the, the diversity there is off the charts. It's what Australia used to be like 200 years ago. So the understory in really mint condition, good condition, and um, the koala densities there, I've never seen anywhere else in Australia, except for, some, except for somewhere like Kangaroo Island off the coast of South Australia where they've been introduced. So I've never seen the densities of koalas like that anywhere else in Australia. In actual fact, when I came back home after that particular trip and read the ecology report, the ecology report that Susan Lay read when they did the first uh, survey, they found 101 koalas and 138 greater gliders within the project area. And those densities are just amazing. You don't see that anywhere else uh, in Australia, really. Um, and it's not only that, there was animals like rufous bedongs, uh, reptiles, we saw snakes at night. Um, uh, and like I said in that, that clip that you just saw, uh, whiptail wallabies, um, swamp wallabies, eastern greys. Um, um, and I quite often go out looking for greater gliders through, through bushland quite regularly. 
And up here in North Queensland, you'd be lucky to see two or three a night. And that's doing a lot of walking, a lot of spotlighting. On my recent trip there just a few weeks ago, uh, I found 10 greater gliders within a few hectares around my campsite on that project area. So 10 greater gliders and three koalas, two were female mothers with cubs on their back. Um, and that's just extraordinary. And that was only looking around for half an hour, an hour. And you don't normally see that, that density of wildlife usually anywhere else. Well, I've never seen it anywhere else in Queensland or in Australia, really. Yeah, so, so it's a really special place. Um, so and, mm. and so we, we so we've got the environmental report. We've now got your first-hand evidence. You've been there. You've seen it. You've come back with images. There is no doubt whatsoever that this area is rich in native wildlife, including the koala, which is you know I mean it's it's by far the mm. most threatened species you know in this country. But it it has an iconic status, and people really don't want to to see it harmed. Can you see? Let's try and look on. Let's just try and be as generous as we can. Is there an argument that the benefit from the renewable energy on this site, the wind turbines, and the benefit that will have in reducing our carbon emissions, do you think the minister could argue that that benefit is greater than the benefit of keeping the koalas? Well, the, the simple answer is no. Um, the whole concept and idea of, of destroying what's left of our high biodiversity for renewable energy or any energy source. I don't, I don't really care if it's coal, seam, gas, coal or oil. If they're going into areas where there's significant uh, ecological values, well then, like Susan Lay did with her decision, was refuse the application. And that that's my philosophy. Um, in After 200 years of colonisation of Australia, we've cleared so much land. So much land has already been degraded, cleared and diminished. And now we have things like koalas and greater gliders that are actually now endangered. Um, when Susan Lay knocked back the Lotus Creek development three years ago, the koala and greater glider were listed as vulnerable. They've actually been upgraded now to endangered. So that's even another reason why these projects should not go ahead in areas where there's rich diversity and dense populations of koalas and greater gliders. So they're now classed as endangered. So, you know, what, what do we need to find on the site? Do we need to find a, a thylacine on the site for Plebisec to reject this development? Going back to your question, should we be developing high biodiverse habitat for renewable energy? Well, it's a complete oxymoron. Um, we, we can't be clearing and and pushing species further to extinction by and, and thinking that we're going to save the climate and the planet. Um, it's just it completely doesn't make sense to me. Uh, you can't you can't do yeah. both. Um, if we were to have renewable energy, or well, then the the first places that should be considered are those places that are already degraded or diminished or have you know no no biodiversity and there's plenty of those sort of places in Australia the reason why the renewable energy sector isn't going into those areas is because they're more expensive they're places that aren't up against existing transmission infrastructure 
the reason why Lotus Creek, Boomer Range Wind Farm, Clark Creek Wind Farm, uh, Mower Creek Wind Farm, um, and uh, uh, Moonlight Range Wind Farm, the reason why they're going ahead in the locations they're going ahead is because they're they're in places that are close have close proximity to existing transmission lines. That's the only reason because it's cheap. My argument is well. If that's the only reason, well, then that's complete uh, idiotic. Mm. Um, we should be pushing the renewable energy into areas that are low biodiverse areas. If it costs more money, well, then so be it. But then when you start looking at the renewable energy sector, um, there's, it's, it's really propped up by things called um, renewable energy uh, certificates. And these certificates are what props up the industry. And without those certificates, well, then the entire industry will go bankrupt. There's, there's really not. Um, but we can talk about that as, an, as another issue. But yeah. yeah. Um, but before, even before that got to Tanya Plibersek's desk, um, it had been signed off by the Queensland government. The Queensland government will typically sign off on a project and it then has to go to be ticked off also by the federal government. Now, the Queensland government uh, is, again, highly committed, or so the Premier says, to saving koalas. <laughs> Anastasia Palaszczuk is another one who loves <laughs> to pepper her Facebook pages with pictures of koalas. In fact, she pastes videos, <laughs> too, to show how much she loves the koala. Let's just have a look at a video which shows... Just how keen Tanya, sorry, Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Premier of Queensland, is on koalas. Today I'm really pleased to announce that we are going to have koala priority areas twice the size of the ACT in southeast Queensland to protect koalas like this. This is so important. It's a once in a generational opportunity to do it. And I'm so pleased that we've been able to do it because it means that koalas like this will be here for generations to come. And we also know that the bushfires has had a really big impact on our koala population. And uh, by having these key koala priority areas, we know that they'll be protected for decades to come. Sarah? Yeah, that's fantastic. Who do we have here? This is Khaleesi and her little baby, Evie. Evie, and how yeah. old's Evie? Evie's about seven months old now, so Aww. still very much dependent on mum. Yeah. Um, and uh, as you can see, huge bite. And, do not love and when does she leave mum? At what age? About 12 months, she'll start to become quite independent and move away from mum. Oh, hello. So she's got quite a bit of time yet left to spend with her mum. Oh, gorgeous. Well, today's <laughs> announcement is 100% about protecting these koalas for future generations. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I'm so pleased that we're doing it. I, I, honestly, Steve, I don't quite know what to say to that. Here's the Premier. Under her watch, they have approved wind turbine developments which will clear more than 30 square kilometres of koala habitat. Mm. They have another 70 square kilometres in the planning stage, and we know because the Queens, we know what the Queensland government does. It will simply rubber stamp it. It'll say, go ahead. So that's 100 square kilometres, more than 100 square kilometres, which of koala habitat, which is de destined to be cleared, because this government will simply approve it. And yet they are spending money on little koala projects here and there, and the premier's cropping up. I, I could hardly bear to watch the video, quite frankly. What's your reaction? <coughs> yeah. 
Oh, I'm disgusted, absolutely disgusted. Um, that Lotus Creek area uh, is worthy of being one of the best koala national parks in Australia. It's a place where anyone could drive up that range. That range is 400 metres high in elevation, so it's quite a cool area uh, on the coastal ranges, halfway between Mackay and Rockhampton, and they could simply uh, um, have, you know, uh, acquire that property, which they've actually got a budget for. Uh, Palaszczuk announced in the last budget a $250 million acquisition fund for the acquisition of national parks and protected areas in Queensland. As far as I know, she hasn't spent one cent of that of that budget amount. And she could go there and buy that, prop, buy that property up at Lotus Creek and make that one of the most significant koala national parks in Australia. And it's a place where you could drive up there very easily off the Bruce Highway. You turn left at St. Lawrence, off the coastal community of St. Lawrence, turn left, big great koala national park. You could drive up the range and very easily see a koala uh, without looking too hard. Um, my estimate is, is around one koala every 200 metres. Um, and in actual fact, the first time I was there earlier this year, we saw three koalas just driving along the dirt road through the uh, across those ranges. Um, so simply just by looking out the window, you'll see koalas. It is one of the most, it is the hotspot of koalas in Queensland, if not Australia. And to see Anastasia Palaszczuk there cuddling up to koalas and showing this insincere, uh, um, insincere connection to koalas and wanting to protect them is is comical and farcical. Uh, yeah. She does not mean it. And if she was dead set serious, she would not have let the Lotus Creek wind farm be approved. And there's, um, there's other wind farm projects sitting with her right now, such as um, um, uh, Moonlight Range wind farm and Moa Creek wind farm and other wind farm proposals where koalas are known to be, but probably not in the same densities as what they are there at Lotus Creek. She has the ability to stop some of these projects that are in koala habitat. But like you said earlier, the state government is just rubber stamping these projects. As soon as they come in, they're rubber stamped. Mm. Um, so it doesn't, and like I said, do we need to find a thylacine on the site and an extinct species for the government to stop some of these projects? And even then, I don't think they'll stop these projects. They'll just rubber stamp them. And, and when we when we say they are destroying koala habitat, they are really destroying it. And I credit you with this, Steve. You 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 yes. are the one that brought this to the world by bringing to get bringing some footage that showed wind farms under construction at Caban and at Mount Emerald nearby. And and that mm. footage, it, it just it blows your mind when you see the amount of civil engineering work that's involved in the middle of native forests, chopping down half a hill, and that's no exaggeration in, in the case of the Caban wind farm. How do we get this message out there? Well, by doing it on programs like this, but I think we just need to uh, just ramp it up and go harder. And what we need to show to um, to Australians is that there is a significant cost involved with renewables. And what we need to do is educate Australians about renewable energy. 
And I was very naive up until three years ago, very naive about renewable energy. I thought renewable energy would be going into cleared areas. I didn't really understand the capacity factors of renewable energy and the amount of infrastructure that you need to try to replace some of the, the coal, coal plants and, and um, thermal plants that we have in Australia. So what we need to do is go on this journey and educate Australians that to replace one coal plant like the Stanwell Power Plant in Rockhampton, for example, we need something like 20 huge big wind farms consisting of 50 to 100 wind turbines per, per farm. I don't really like calling them wind farms. I prefer to call them wind factories. But even then, even then, the entire network will need to be backed up by gas. And then the other issue is connecting all these wind factories with uh, high-voltage transmission infrastructure, um, which involves clearing even more forests and the fragmentation of more forests. And it's not just necessarily the clearing of the forests, it's, also, it's the fragmentation. It's pushing roads into, into what, uh, at the moment, wilderness areas, places that are inaccessible, remote and wild. That's why things like koalas have existed in these areas, because they are so remote. And these roads are being punched into these, into these inaccessible areas and opening up these inaccessible areas to weed infestations and feral animals and feral species, and also to altered fire regimes. We're going to see more fires as these roads are punched into wild areas. Um, so what we need to do is educate Australians that um, renewable energy projects are, need to have a lot of space. They're, they consist of a huge um, spatial footprint and um, and we need a lot of it across the country and it all needs to be connected with very expensive high voltage transmission lines, um, which means that power prices can really never realistically come down because half of your electricity costs that you get for your, your residential home, half of that cost is transmission infrastructure. And that transmission infrastructure will have to be doubled, if not tripled. And Chris Bowen has indicated we need 28,000 kilometres of new transmission infrastructure across Australia. And that cost is going to be borne by, by electricity users, by mums and dads um, across the country. So the cost of renewable energy is going to be very, very expensive. And we need to educate Australians about that. Mm. And... Um, and, uh, and there are alternatives um, and, uh, you know, and I was very against nuclear energy, but it wasn't until I put um, all my ideology aside, I looked at the maths around renewables and what's, what's required and, and I had to look at nuclear energy again with fresh eyes and look at the data and the facts and the facts indicate that renewable, that well, nuclear energy is really going to be one of our solutions, um, mm. and, uh, and and now I'm a nuclear advocate, and I think that is one a, a part of the solution. Good on you, Steve. Uh, let's hope the minister. She has a chance to redeem herself to some extent. She mm. has the uh, application for the Chalumban wind turbine development on her desk. We've done. We've brought that to everybody's attention on recent episodes of Battleground. I've been up mm. there. You took me round. Mm. Let's just hope that she'll do the right thing on that because there's more koala territory at risk there plus a whole lot of other really sensitive biodiversity, isn't there? Yeah.
Yeah, and one thing that we failed to mention is actually the the, the aesthetic splendour of these these hills and mountains. Yeah. And, like, I'm a photographer, and so I see everything in a very, um, in, in a way that I see beauty uh, and I look for beauty. And uh, it breaks my heart to think that a lot of these hills and mountains once they're smashed to smithereens for these turbines, they can never be, they can never come back. And this is an argument by the pro-renewable industry is that, oh, well, you know, the, the country can grow back. Well, it can't because entire mountain ridgelines and uh, mountain tops are actually decim- completely annihilated. They're, they're blown apart. Um, sometimes even TNT is used to blow the tops off these mountains and they can't be regenerated or revegetated. Um, so, by approving these wind farms, it is it is a permanent legacy for future generations, and and uh, a lot of these mountains and ridgelines um, will be altered forever. And uh, that's that's another thing that we really need to consider as well. Yeah. Well, so thank you, Nick. Thank you, Stephen. The tide is turning. You and I both sense that. There's more yeah. and more. Uh, outrage about this around the country. Thank you to everybody who's written to me or contacted me on this, uh, or various people from various parts of the country faced with other developments that they're trying to stop. Good, good, more more power to you. What, what we say at the very least is that the same rules should apply for wind and solar developments as apply to mining and farming. And if those rules applied, obviously, places like Lotus Creek would be safe. Steve, thank you for joining me and we'll, we're sure we'll be updating, we'll be bringing you back for an update soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you, Nick. Yeah, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Well, as Stephen Nowakowski says, the Queensland Labor government is out of control when it comes to renewable energy policy. It, it's announced it's going to spend $62 billion of taxpayers' money on renewable energy investments, and it's going to do it through state-owned energy entities. It includes grid-scale wind and solar, transmission lines, pumped hydro dams. It's bound to end in tears. Government-run and funded projects typically carry a high risk of budget blowouts and they have a less rigorous assessment of financial risks and benefits. Add to that, the state's lacks environmental energy and environmental restrictions under the Code 23 approval process that applies to renewable energy. It means that vast areas of rural Queensland face the threat of being turned into wind and solar in industrial landscapes before sanity prevails. Senator Matt Canavan is one politician who's determined to fight this environmental vandalism. I caught up with him recently in his hometown of Rockhampton. Matt, the renewable energy industry seems to have set this as its target area here around Rockhampton, around Gladstone, around Mackay. This must be troubling for you. Look, it's troubling mainly for the people who have to live in the areas where this is going in. Uh, uh, it's often we're often told nobody wants a nuclear power station in the backyard. Well, I tell you what, no one wants a wind, uh, two hundred and seventy metre high wind turbine in their backyard. Certainly, no one, none of the none of the areas around Bondi <laughs> or, or, or or Wentworth, and none of these areas want uh, big renewable energy projects in their backyard. And of course, neither do we here either. Uh, it's just so shocking to people here when they can look and see uh, a coal-fired power station uh, that can generate uh, massive amounts of electricity on a, on a pretty small area of land, and then these wind turbines and solar panels come in and produce sometimes a tenth of the electricity and take up ten times the land area. 
And then we're told it's sort of to save the planet and to protect the environment. Uh, I just don't think we can destroy our environment and then expect to save the planet at the same time. These things have to be stopped uh, before they take away all our natural beauty and landscape from here in central Queensland. You've you've got people like Tanya Plibersek, you know, an in-city Sydney MP, uh, making decisions on this without ever bothering to come out and look at the communities that will be affected. Well, I think they should be forced to. Uh, uh, Last week at our Nationals Party conference, we uh, called for a moratorium on large-scale solar and wind uh, until we get better approval processes in place. And those approval processes should include proper consultation with the local communities that will be affected. Uh, There are, of course, people who do benefit from renewable energy coming to an area like this. The people who host it get paid thousands and thousands of dollars. But all that does is just divide the community uh, between haves and have-nots. Those without the renewable energy projects on their land get no compensation, but they have their amenity destroyed. Sometimes they can't sleep at night. And, of course, their local environment that they love and want to protect uh, is destroyed alongside it. So, I mean, my ask is a simple one. Uh, those in the country that want to pursue renewable energy at a breakneck speed uh, should have to come out here and face the people they want to impose it on first. Yeah, in previous um, campaigns you've fought, and I'm thinking about uh, the Adani mine, you, you worked hard to make sure that that got a fair hearing and, and became the, you know, the great export earner that it is. But in those cases, you, you found yourself up against... Green opponents and uh, protesters from Greenpeace and everybody else have been up here in Queensland trying to stop them. I I don't know about you, but I haven't seen too many uh, green protesters protesting against this really destruction of the landscape for renewable energy. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the the environmental activists out there that that are uh, trying to protect the environment and campaign against these massive renewable energy projects, they themselves are a bit of an endangered species, (laughs) unfortunately. They are out there, though. They are there. And... uh, it is funny that politics brings these strange bedfellows. And yes, I was I was obviously uh, on the other side than Bob Brown on the Adani mine, but I actually seem to be on the same side as Bob Brown uh, on this issue. He himself is campaigning against wind farms uh, around Tasmania. It'd be great if he. I, I welcome. I'd love to have him back in Central Queensland again. Get a to, friendlier welcome yeah, than he did last he'd time. Get, he'd, get a, he'd get a much friendlier welcome uh, next time, and uh, he could also do just as good work as he did last. So, look, uh, I, I, I do hope, though. I think, look, I've got nothing against green campaigners as individuals. They've uh, and many of them have done great things for our environment to protect our environment. And I know there are many of them that are, that are heartfelt in their desire to protect the environment. They are horrified uh, with what is happening by some large overseas uh, companies being allowed to run roughshod through the countryside here. And, and I'm happy to work with them. I mean, I, I, I'm in politics to generate outcomes. In the case of Adani, it was to get jobs going, get those export revenues going, get benefits for local Indigenous people. And, and now here on this issue, it's to protect our natural environment, which is important too. Uh, one of the reasons I'm passionate about nuclear or even coal-fired power is it's much, much, it's got a much, much lower footprint on our natural environment than renewable energy. Uh, and, and therefore, if you are pro-environment, you should definitely be against large-scale solar and wind projects. And if you care about carbon emissions, well, go the nuclear route. It's much more efficient. This Labor government have been quietly, uh, and none of this has had a lot of publicity in the mainstream press, been putting uh, the screws on... Queensland businesses on farmers and particularly as we've heard this afternoon on on the seafood industry why don't we get more publicity over this? Well because this is being done to uh, to to 
uh, assuage a moral guilt to uh, a priestly caste that lives overseas. Uh, there's uh, been a certain mythology that's cropped up around things like the Great Barrier Reef uh, and uh, some of those that want to purport to signal their, their preference to protect the Great Barrier Reef uh, want a penance. They want people to pay a penance uh, to receive absolution. And, and, and unfortunately for us, uh, those people that that penance are applied, and are, are applied to is not, not the people calling for it, not the people living in the inner cities that, that uh, are worried about the reef. They're not asked to pay a price. Uh, it's only those who live out here. The worst thing about this, though, is it's, it's pretty much always and everywhere a futile price. Uh, the costs are imposed on, on fishermen, on farmers, uh, to so-called protect the reef. It does nothing of the sort. Uh, it just convinces people that something is being done then they can go to bed and sleep at night, uh, while those that are affected by these changes uh, stay up at night because they don't have a job anymore and they don't know how they're going to pay their bills. The gillnet fishing sector, which is uh, uh, highly uh, responsible and efficient and environmentally uh, protective way of, of farming, barramundi in particular, that's going to be devastated, isn't it, by this ban on gillnet fishing? Uh, do you think people start to wake up if the price of barramundi starts going up? Well, I think ultimately the, all of these green dreams end in the pain of having a higher, higher bill, whether it's for power, whether it's for petrol, uh, whether it's this case for food. Uh, it's just how much pain is caused on the way. The problem here, though, is if we don't act now and wait for those bill increases, those higher seafood prices to come, uh, it'll probably be too late uh, because it's hard enough to convince young Australians to take up an industry like fishing. You've got to get up early, you're away from home, it's hard work. Uh, and if it ends, they're probably not going to come back if we realise our mistakes uh, two or three years down the track. What will happen is we just end up having to import more seafood from overseas. We already import about 80% of our seafood needs. We've got the third largest ocean territory in the world. Uh, it is an environmental catastrophe that we rely for so much on our seafood protein needs from the overfished areas of the Mekong Delta in Southeast Asia, in Papua New Guinea, uh, and do nothing to sustainably extract uh, seafood from our own water. It would be much better for the world if we did so. We also provide those jobs to people. And so, look, hopefully we'll just camp- we've just got to campaign on this and put that information before people that there is just no scientific evidence that gillnets are causing dugongs, dolphins, sharks to die. That is an absolute lie. There's not even any evidence being produced by those people who want to make these changes. Again, this is just all about signalling a virtue to, to organisations that are based away from here, that don't come visit here, and, and don't even bother supporting our local seafood industry. Well, when I started on the journey of uh, producing Battleground some uh, ooh, 16 months ago, I guess, I had no idea that it would turn into a defence of the environment, that we'd be standing up to save the koala, to save our nat nat natural wildlife, to prevent the destruction of old growth forest in tropical areas. And yet that's the way we've had to turn because nobody else is doing it. The green movements have forgotten where their roots are. They have forgotten that they were there to save the environment, not save some fancy idea about global warming and what to do with it. Well, we're going to carry on this fight. If you have something to tell me, if you're in a community that's affected by one of these monstrosities, or in other ways you are aware of the damage that this renewable energy delusion is making on our country, please let me know, nick.cater at adhtv.tv. I'll read that again, Nick Cater, no dot actually, Nick Cater at adhtv.tv. It's there on your screen, in case I read it wrong the second time. 
Thank you for everybody who's been involved in this show. Thank you, of course, to the team here at ADH, uh, my colleagues at the Menzies Research Centre. Most of all, thank you for watching. Good night.